This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And our topic today deals with the, um, how can I say this, probably one of the most discussed areas uh, of cultural engagement that exists today, and that's the area of sexuality and particularly LGBTQ issues tied to the church. How should the church seek to minister effectively to people out of an LGBTQ background. And my guest today is Caleb Kaltenbach, who's written two different books. One is called Messy Grace, and he's followed it up with Messy Truth. So he stayed messy, he's just moved the target. And uh, um, the second book is Messy Truth, How to Foster Community Without Sacrificing Convictions, How to, how to Engage in Relationships with Balance in this area. Caleb is, consults with Christian colleges and Christian churches around the country in this area, and he now is research pastor at Shepherd Church in Los Angeles, which means that he engages in sermon and staff support um, for uh, the way in which the church both preaches the word and reaches out in issues relied related to cultural engagement. So he's kind of a kindred spirit in terms of, of what I do here. And my Kayla, first of all, it's great to great to be back in contact with you. Our relationship goes back several years. Uh, I remember coming out to teach at Talbot, and we talk, are talking about this and riding around LA, um, talking about these issues when you were just thinking about speaking into this. So for me to see this, you know, more than a decade later, and and to see you speaking into this is really great. So I appreciate you being with us. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate your ministry, um, not only uh, in in biblical studies, but uh, more importantly in how to engage culture, because I think it's so necessary. And I'm also proud to be a DTS alum. So I remember I got to shake your hand when I walked across the stage. (laughs) Exactly right. It was a full journey. You did the full loop. So you've hit California and Texas. What else is there? Anyway, um, (laughs) uh, so... um, so uh, my standard question, just to help people who, who may not be familiar with your background in ministry, is to always ask, how did a nice guy like you get into a gig like this? So uh, um, so how, how did you develop an interest in this area? Uh, and obviously I'm alluding to just the whole fascinating context out of which you've come. Yeah, yeah. I have the unique uh, perspective of uh, being kind of in both worlds. So um, when I was two, my parents divorced. They went into same-sex relationships, and I was raised uh, my whole childhood by three LGBTQ parents, uh, two of which who were activist-oriented, uh, growing up, going with them to clubs and parades and activist events, and uh, just seeing how some who professed to be Christians treated them uh, just horribly. 
And I, I thought to myself, I never want to be a Christian because if Christians are this bad, I can't imagine how awful Jesus must be. Mm. Uh, but then I ended up joining a Bible study to try to disprove the Bible. That worked out real well, as you can tell. <laughs> and I realized that Jesus was not like a lot of his followers. I realized that he had uh, very, very deep theological convictions. Uh, but he also had very, very real, authentic relationships with people who are nothing like him. And so I ended up becoming a Christian. Uh, my parents disowned me for a while when I came out to them as a Christian. Uh, but then eventually, um, you know, I went to Bible college seminary when I was living in Texas. They both moved down closer to be with our family. And at the ages of 69, 70, they, they became Christian. Um, I've held uh, positions as associate pastor, senior pastor, and um, I, I feel like I have kind of a glimpse into both worlds. So whereas there are a lot of people who talk about um, the academic aspects, cultural aspects, or even apologetics, I feel like I kind of come in and talk more about um, the, the practical ministry side of how do you create ministry systems and churches that allow people to belong, but also honor the organization's beliefs. And then at the same time, I deal a lot with families and, and uh, relationships. Well, uh, that's really important, and I often say in these difficult areas that are related to cultural engagement, and I have a template that I talk about, there's what you believe, but then there's the relational development element of how it works and how you need to work through the relational element. And if you get either one of those wrong, uh, you've got a problem. And, and so it's very important to be – to have – I like the way you stated this in the subtitle of the book. Uh, on the one hand, you have your convictions, but thinking about how you foster those relationships, how you foster community, how you move towards people so that uh, they are uh, open to and will consider the gospel is a very, very important part of this conversation that often gets ignored. And sometimes the, uh, the static that we create in the midst of defending our convictions gets in the way relationally of how we interact with people. And in the process, we actually cut ourselves off from the goal that we have, which is to hopefully um, that the Spirit will use that relationship to draw people to Christ. So this is a, a, an, an important um, discussion in, in, in many ways. Um, so, um, so when you think about this and you think about the balancing of community and, and conviction, uh, talk a little bit about what you find yourself regularly doing when you walk into a church space and they're trying to wrestle with this. How do you, how do you how do you how do you have them think about that space and get them to wrestle with what it is they need to be? Well, uh, usually there are a lot of churches who think to themselves, "I need to start some kind of special outreach or special ministry to um, uh, reach LGBTQ individuals." And I tell them that's the exact wrong thing to do, and it's even a little bit creepy at the same time. We don't want to do either. And so what I try to get them to do is to be intentional about what they're already doing, okay? Intentionality, I think, is the key, where you don't have to add a bunch of things, but you do have to think about, about who needs to be there, about who Jesus wants there, and about how to make it easy for people to find Jesus, because it sure can be difficult to follow him. And so that, that can be uh, done as by talking to churches and church leaders about trying to help them to understand that love is just as much about truth. And, you know, it's we think about the love portion with the quote-unquote grace side, but I try to get them to understand that love is just as much truth, 
loving your neighbor is just as much truth as is uh, how we live and how Jesus wants us to live. Um, intentionality as far as uh, I believe that there should be places for people to serve in church no matter what, even if uh, they don't believe in Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean they can serve anywhere. Nobody in a church can serve anywhere. I'm willing to bet, Daryl, that you and I would never uh, lead worship at our churches. Maybe on the church's last day, we would, (laughs) but they would never ask me to do that. But at the same time, when we get people who aren't following Jesus to start serving, they don't even realize it, but they're doing the work of Jesus. They're actually acting like Him, and they're surrounding themselves with other believers, uh, and they're getting that community. Um, and, and I help the, in, in the first book, Messy Grace, I, I try to help people to understand that loving your, your, your LGBTQ friends and family that you have personal relationships with does not compromise theology. Okay. But in this book, I'm trying to get communities to understand that loving people who are not like us and even people who are making uh, really poor uh, life choices or relational choices or that kind of thing, that really doesn't mean that we're compromising our theology. Um, One of the things that that I point to as an example of this is in, I believe it is, 1 Corinthians 14, when uh, the Apostle Paul is talking about speaking in tongues, and he says, uh, when the whole church is gathered and you start speaking in tongues, if unbelievers are among you, won't they think you are out of your mind? And one of the things I point to is there's a hypothetical real-life illustration that, that, that is behind Paul's whole point on tongues, that the church was gathering and there were unbelievers there. And I know there are different interpretations as to what the two words in that chapter for unbeliever can mean, but at the same time, these are still unbelievers. And you even have Paul in this sense saying, be intentional about what you do when you're gathered based on who's there and who's not there. So what I'm hearing kind of between the lines and in, in, in you're saying this is, is that when you make LGBTQ a special category and treat it distinct from everything else and your other relationships in the way in which you're trying to outreach, you're probably taking a misstep of one kind or another. That really what you're talking about is how to relate well to people um, of all sorts of different backgrounds who are outside the church who need Jesus and LGBTQ. GTQ is just one category of that kind of person. Am I hearing that right? 100%. Yeah. So uh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, 100%. And I think that we create these special categories because, number one, our mind hates ambiguity. And so, you know, uh, you think about how many decisions do we have to make in a single day? Thousands upon thousands. And our mind wants to go on autopilot so that it doesn't take much thought for us to pick up the toothbrush and brush our teeth to decide to take a shower to decide what to wear or decide to go to work or that kind of a thing these just become automatic in our head and i think that our mind naturally wants to create categories and it's easier for us to just boom boom move on the next thing and we have to train ourselves not to do that with people because we end up glossing over them However, unintentionally, we end up glossing over them, and we can't treat people like we do our uh, minuscule everyday decisions. We've got to train our mind to think differently about people. And so in the midst of, uh, of thinking about what that involves, it's important to, to wrestle with um, 
relating to people in, in, in a healthy kind of way. I actually think that one of the reasons you create special categories or people create special categories is because it, it's awkward and they don't know what to do and they have, there's a little bit of fear and indecision about how to step into it. And, I, I agree. And, and so in the midst of that, you know, what you do is you create a category that kind of walls it off in a certain way, and you're really oftentimes dealing with your own uncertainty in terms of how to go there as opposed to, or in addition to, maybe a better way to say it, in addition to, you know, not understanding where someone else is coming from and having, having convictions about it. So that combination yeah. works like a huge static in the relationship that, that prevents you from pursuing it in the way you might if you were just talking to your neighbor and, and and were just meeting them for the first time, they just moved in, you don't know anything about them, and you're just trying to build a relationship with them. I agree. One of my favorite definitions of fear comes from one of my favorite authors, uh, the novelist, murder mystery no- novelist, Agatha Christie. She says that fear is a lack of knowledge. And I think she's absolutely correct, because when you think about it, we naturally fear what we don't understand and what makes us feel out of control. Um, Some people say fear is a bad thing. I totally disagree. I I think that it can be bad. You know, God gave us the capacity to feel fear for a reason. If you you and I are hiking, Daryl, and we see a mountain lion, I'm going to be a little afraid. I really am. And that that little emotion is telling me to back away or push you forward while I back away. One of the two. Thank you. Um, I appreciate that. Yeah. No <laughs> Just to survive, okay? Yeah, but, yeah. but like fear, when it starts to control our relationships or prevent us from really seeing the, the dignity and worth and humanity of every person, then that becomes toxic. And I think that's the kind of fear that we're talking to. And I think the key is two things. Number one is trusting God who has all power and knows everything and is unconditionally loving. So when we feel out of control or we don't understand things, we lean into our relationship with him. And then as you just kind of painted a picture of, I think that we need to be empathetic. Um, I think that we need to lean into the relationship with the other person and get to know them. And, you know, empathy is not the rejection of a person. And empathy is definitely not agreeing with every life choice that they've made, but empathy is acknowledging their reality. And I think that's part of the answer as well. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. So that's interesting because I do a lot of convers- I do a lot of discussion of difficult conversations, difficult spaces, if you will. And one thing that I like to say is is that when you're confronted with a difficult space or what you perceive to be a difficult space, there really is three three possible responses. You can push back, 
Okay, You can withdraw and just say, I'm not going there. Or you can work through it. You can push through it. And uh, and I think what the Scripture calls us to do, I think the, element, the essence of the Great Commission is, you know, go into the world and make disciples. It isn't go into the church and make disciples, because they're already there, or at least theoretically. And so, um, so the gospel calls us to engage with people who are in a different place spiritually and calls us to engage and get to know them, et cetera, so that relationally we're moving um, into that space. And then another thing I, I like to say is um, there's a difference between moving towards understanding where someone is coming from and agreeing with them. And sometimes Absolutely. we mix those two. We think that because we um, reach out a hand or show empathy or develop a, a, an effort to understand someone, in some cases maybe even develop some um, compassion for what they've been through or where they are, that somehow we're agreeing with them. No, we're connecting with them. That's different. And in the midst of connecting with them, we're building the relationship so that we can get to more substantive kinds of conversations that might allow for the differences to actually be sorted through and sorted sorted out. And that and that isn't a quick um, that isn't a quick process normally. That takes a lot of time to build that trust. But um, but to do that is the way to. To walk in. So, with all that as background, this is a terrible question because it took me forever to get to it. But, uh, um, what advice do you give to to communities about how to um, think through the space? I mean, one principle you've already given us, I think, is um, just just try and relate normally uh, to the person who walks in. Help them to um, be. Um, how can I say this? Uh, be be open to having them uh, be in association with your community, so they can be exposed to what your community is. I mean, is that kind of the core, or at least one of the core principles you're trying to discuss? Absolutely, that's one of the core principles I'm trying to discuss in there. And the book is really divided into three different parts: uh, convictions about God's words, uh, compassion uh, for anyone in conversations with everyone. And actually, I quote you and uh, Michael quite a few times in the conversations piece in the last one third of the book. And so um, one of the key elements, I think, and this may seem simplistic to some who are listening, it seemed simplistic to me until a few years ago when I really, really started thinking through this and really studying this is that we need to learn how to ask better questions. Because if you're going to be empathetic and get to know somebody, you need to be able to ask really good questions. And I I don't think most people know how to ask really good questions. There are researchers that do. Uh, My wife is a therapist, so she has to know how to ask good questions. If you're a litigator, you know, and and you're, you're in court, you have to. But a lot of Christian leaders, we feel like we're trained more to tell people what to do. But asking questions is different. And um, I love, you know, Howard Hendricks's quote, where he says that if you want to understand a passage, you've got to bombard it with questions. And I think in a similar way, if we want to understand people, we need to learn how to ask really good questions that are pointed, that are solution focused and, and questions that really help us to understand 
where they're coming from, what they've been through. Um, because when we understand that, when we ask them questions, it engages a different part of their mind. And I really, really believe in that, in those moments, we start to in, earn influence with them because that's really the whole goal. The goal is not orientation change. The goal is not come and be just like us. No, the goal is life change, helping them to find Jesus. And so I think asking questions is a key element that many of us underestimate. And when you ask those questions, how you respond to those answers also becomes important. I tell people that um, that when you're engaged, when when you're engaged in moving towards a relationship with someone who you know is coming from a different place, worldview wise. Um, that it's really important that you put your doctrinal meter on what I call mute, okay? I say, don't turn it off, okay? You can't do that anyway. Your mind's going to react to what you hear. But put it on mute, which means that your goal initially is not to engage in a debate, but to get uh, what I call a GPS reading on the person, you know, to just get to know them, to understand who they are, where they're coming from, let them tell you their story, all those kinds of things that say, I'm making an effort to connect to you and to understand who you are and what drives you. Um, not, not at all in a hostile kind of way, but just in, a, just in an informative kind of way. And hopefully those will give me signposts about values, experiences in the past, or whatever that the person has had, that will allow you to, to um, connect with them. Um, and then once you show them that respect, which is what that actually involves, being a good listener is a sign of respect. Once you do that and you've built that relationship, then you've laid the foundation for having more substantive conversations down the road. Is that a, is that a decent map for what we're yeah, talking about? Absolutely. absolutely. I, think, I think you're spot on. And I think, you know, kind of as you already touched on, you know, when you think about these uh, these uh, interactions, conversations, whether individually or even as a church community, uh, you can either choose to win a debate or earn influence. Winning a debate, pretty easy comparatively. I mean, you can do different things, um, but but earning influence that's difficult. That takes uh, the death of ego. It takes putting your your theology on mute. I love how you say that. You don't turn it off. Mm -hmm. You never turn it off, but you put it on mute. You realize that this is not the time for uh, to flex your theological biceps. Mm -hmm. This is a time for you to get to know the person. Um, I even think about Jesus when Jesus engaged uh, the woman at the well, and you look at him. He didn't go there and flex flex his theological biceps. He actually met her where she was at. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians uh, 9. I become all things to all people. That's what the Apostle Paul says. Uh, earning influence is key because here's what it comes down to. You know, when I think about my kids, I want to have enough influence with them so that if life ever hits the bottom of the barrel, if, if they just get punched in the face by life over and over again, I want to make sure that I've earned the right to be one of the first calls or the first texts that they're going to make. And I think that when we think about our LGBTQ friends and family and people that we want in our, in our community, we need to do, short of sinning, short of denying Christ, whatever we can to earn the right to be one of the first people that they call when life hits the bottom of the barrel. Because sometimes those are the pivotal moments in life. Those are the God-ordained moments where we, we will have 
the influence and our words will carry a lot of weight and we're able to point people to Jesus. And so, yeah, I would rather fight for influence than to try to win a debate. You know, what's interesting is, as you say that, is I'm, I'm, what comes to mind is the story of Christopher Yan, who I'm sure you know, um, who in the midst of pursuing a, a gay lifestyle, et cetera, eventually got arrested. And, you know, when you get arrested, you're able to make one call. The person that he called was his mother, who had been praying for him, who was a Christian, who had, was a believer. She knew he knew she didn't agree with his lifestyle, but when uh, when he hit bottom, that was the one person he realized he needed to call and connect with. Um, that's a that's a great great illustration of what we're talking about. Let me let me shift gears a little bit because we've been talking mostly individually. The challenge is, and this is harder, I think, how do, you, how do you move communities to have this feel around them? I mean, I can do it as an individual, and I can teach individuals to do it. And obviously, one of the corporate responsibilities is to encourage people to have this mindset and approach on an individual level. But what else, what else needs to be done at the community level to make, to make that environment possible? Yeah, I think I think obviously what you just said, there's there's teaching that needs to happen and that can happen in a variety of ways, whether it's from the pulpit or in webinars or seminars or Sunday school classes, small groups, Bible fellowships, you name it. Obviously, that that's there. Uh, but there's some other things that need to happen. Uh, for instance, the leadership of the church needs to own it. And when I say the leadership, I mean the elder team or the elder board and the staff team. They need to own this. They need to be on the same page. Because if you have the staff on one page and the elders on the other page, it's not going to work. Or if you have the elders up here and the staff over here, it's not going to work. So there needs to be alignment. And then there needs to be alignment with volunteer ministry leaders, such as small group leaders, um, uh, uh, ministry team leaders, uh, really the key main ministry team leaders. There needs to be an alignment that we are going to be a church that is accepting of everyone, but we're not agreeing with just anyone. And there's a difference between acceptance and agreement. So there needs to be that alignment. Another thing that needs to happen is I believe that there need to be pathways for LGBTQ individuals to get involved. And again, we're talking about people who are coming to your church. We're not discussing here people that have been caught doing something and they've already been in your church. We're talking about people who are coming and trying to engage society and people, you know, who are not following Jesus. So how can we get them into small groups? How can we get them into Bible fellowships? What does it look like for them to volunteer? Uh, where could anybody volunteer? Where can they not volunteer? Um, obviously, you would not want uh, somebody uh, who holds a different belief about marriage or relationships uh, teaching a class or something, because you don't want to put somebody in a position where they have to teach something they don't believe. Um, that not only you know hurts the integrity of the, of the church, but it also harms them, and it hurts their integrity, and it will eventually push them away from Jesus. And so that even requires a level of intentionality, obviously not a teaching level, but trying to figure out where in the church can people serve, because we do live in a very justice-oriented society. And so I think volunteerism in the church can actually be a way to engage uh, unbelievers and unchurched people and even de-churched people and people who are um, uh, have been hurt by the church or had 
bad experiences with Christians. So when when you say um, have them be involved, I'm assuming that you're talking about things like um, uh, guest services, helping uh, with uh, uh, with um, you know sometimes there's parking and direction that goes on. Sometimes the support services of the church are are a good candidate. I'll say it this way: are a good candidate for that kind of involvement, that kind of thing. Are there other other spots in the church that you think uh, are open for this kind of involvement? Yeah, and I think that you start by not trying to figure out what's open for involvement, but what's not open for involvement. Okay. And so one of the things I try to help churches to understand is that, you know, again, you don't want to put somebody in a position where they have to teach something that they don't agree with, or they have to teach something that they're not living out in their life. And so for some people, um, you know, for some churches, or most churches, that's usually anything having to do with teaching, anything having to do with spiritual responsibility, anything having to do with worship leading. So, so those three areas are usually the main areas. And then we have all the other areas that we can look at. You know, once we say, okay, what ministries fall under spiritual responsibility or spiritual influence in somebody's life? Um, what, what areas fall under worship leading? What areas fall under teaching? And then you look at you know, what's left, which is usually a lot in the church, and you're like, okay, um, how might these be open? Is, is this a good place? Is this a good place? And and again, a lot of these uh, are based on conversation, too, because you could somebody have somebody that attends your church or starts going, they want to get involved, they say they're gay, but what they don't tell you and what you don't know if you don't have a conversation with them is that they are actually celibate out of their theological conviction, but they still refer to themselves as gay. That's different than being in a same-sex marriage. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So let me let me. Um, we've got time for one more question. Um, let me ask you this: It's it, it's an objection. I could hear someone saying, "Let's say, well, if you place these people in visible locations, ministering alongside in the church." Are you are you compromising the convictions of the church, or I'll give you an alternative, just make it a question easier? Are you are you doing some prioritizing that's really important um, in saying we value relationships and we value connections with people and we want to work alongside people and this is part of the way that we um, have them participate in our community and come to understand who we are. Where do you where do you I can see the objector saying this would be confusing to someone. Um, how do you deal with that objection? Yeah, well, first of all, I would say that, um, number one, we already put sinners in areas of volunteerism already on a regular basis every single weekend in every single position. So, um, if, and, and I understand the objection, and I've heard it many times, but if we're going to draw a line with not putting sinners in volunteerism, we're not going to have any volunteers. I mean, it's just going to be a shortage because nobody is going to be there. And if somebody thinks they should be there, that's not the person you want there. So it's the, back, um, so I, it's the backhanded thing of creating that special category, in other words. Yeah, yeah. And, and here's what it comes down to. When we're talking about um, uh, issues that go against the sexual norm of what um, churches believe theologically about sexuality, when we talk about those issues, we're going to have probably more people more heterosexual couples who are living together and not married than same-sex couples attending church 
there are places where more same-sex couples will attend church. But we're not just talking about same-sex couples. We're talking about anybody, you know, who who wants to find Jesus and, and that kind of a thing, whether they're, you know, living together and not married, whether they're atheist or whatever. Um, and it doesn't mean they always need to be in a visible uh, uh, position of service. Uh, it depends on the person. But this is not just an LGBTQ thing. This is a trying to bring everybody to Jesus thing. Well, um, Caleb, our time has flown by here, um, so I want to thank you for helping us kind of introduce this area, um, and uh, and I want to thank those who are listening for joining us on the table today. Um, Please do subscribe to our show um, on your favorite uh, podcast app. Leave us an honest review. This helps us, people, to discover these conversations. Um, and we also hope that you'll join us for a, a more in-depth look that we're also going to give to this topic uh, that comes in, in some of the bonus episodes that we're now creating off the table. Um, so, Caleb, thank you for being with us today. Really appreciate, uh, even though this was a brief and almost, I almost feel like, man, we flew through this a- exercise. Very, very helpful, I think, in terms of the basic tone. So I thank you for, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And we uh, thank you for joining us on the table uh, where we discuss issues of God and culture, and we hope you'll join us again soon. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.